All right, come on in, everybody, and find a seat. We're going to continue our series, Anxious for Nothing. But I'll mention as quickly as I can the things that are coming up tomorrow, ladies, on the second and fourth Mondays of the month, there's the Heart to Heart meeting. So that will be happening tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. So all ladies are invited to that. We have our midweek program going on. That starts at 7 o'clock for the kids program, Pioneer Club, and also our teenagers, our high impact. 7.15, 15 minutes later, is when the adult, three adult classes that we have going uh, begin. Those go for one hour. Everything ends at 8.15 on Wednesday. And we have the three classes, Master Plan for Life and Master Plan for Life and the Gospel of John. Those are both two semester classes. So you don't want to go to those because those have been going on since September, uh, and you'd be jumping in very late. However, we have the third class, First Peter, and Dr. Tim Miller from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary is teaching that for us, and he's a few weeks into it, but you could jump into that, and I would recommend that you do. You can watch those uh, live stream as well. If you can't make it in person, you can watch them live stream. We also have every Friday morning at 9 o'clock, moms, uh, a ministry for you. It's called Entrusted, and that is uh, going very well. Our ladies are really uh, learning from that and making friendships out of that, and it's going to be something that's going to be valuable for years to come. So I encourage you to, to think about that, ladies. Also, men, we have a number of things going on for the men. Uh, the Saturday Conquer series is going on on Saturday mornings. That's about how to maintain purity. There's also two Fridays a month, there is the, uh, there is the men's fraternity meeting. And they just had that this past Friday. Uh, I didn't know that was going on this past Friday. I was here late at the office. I was walking out, and Clint was walking in, and he said, I'm here for the meeting, and fear gripped me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, what's the meeting that I, that I missed? But uh, so the men meet a couple times a month for that. So, guys, we haven't forgotten about you either. If you're looking for something, for some fellowship and, uh, and instruction. For everybody, there's our Growth Partners ministry. And that's one-on-one, man, man with a man, woman with a woman. And if you're looking for somebody to share mutual encouragement, then reach out to us uh, and we'll get you with a, a growth partner. And then in this hour, here are the things that are coming up. One is uh, on, on March the 20th. Next month, March the 20th is an important date because on that day we start two, uh, actually uh, four, four-week classes on March the 20th. Uh, Newcomers Orientation is our four-week orientation for those who are new to our church. And I lead that, and we do that second hour for four weeks. So that will start on March the 20th. If you are new to CBC, then you should mark that down, March the 20th, and we'll go through that material together, and we don't hassle you after it's done about joining. We offer that information to you to help you prayerfully consider what you've heard, and whether or not this is the place God would have you grow and serve. But that is on March the 20th. Same time that that's going on, this second hour, then we have Membership 101. Pastor Larry leads that, and that's for everyone who has joined our church since the last time we had the Membership 101 class. So that's a defined number of people. You will be receiving an invitation to that one. The class that I lead, Newcomers Orientation, that's open-ended. Anybody can, anybody can just show up at that starting on March the 20th. While that's going on, our young adults, our Crossroads class, they are also going to be having a separate class for those four weeks. So that would be three classes. The fourth one will be everybody who's not in the other three, and that would be in, in here. And we're going to have uh, uh, three different uh, fellows teaching 
during those four weeks. On March the 20th in here, our missionary to Zambia, he teaches at the Central Africa Baptist University, but he and his wife uh, Sarah are in town, Kevin Sherman, Kevin and Sarah Sherman are in town, so Kevin is going to present an update about their ministry, but he'll also be doing some teaching during second hour on March the 20th. The following two weeks, March 27, April 3rd, Billy Cochran is going to teach in here, and then the week after that, April 10th, Pastor Rich. Easter is April the 17th. On Easter, we're just having one service. We don't have Sunday school. We don't have uh, this class. It's just the worship service on Easter at 1030. The following week, on April the 24th, we will start a new series, all of us in here, and that will be on what the Bible teaches about resolving conflict, okay? So that's everything that's uh, coming up over the next several weeks. For now, we are in this uh, anxious for nothing class on what the Bible teaches about anxiety. And we left off last week looking at uh, an action plan, God's action plan, from Philippians chapter 4. And many of you know that the title of this series actually comes from that passage, Philippians chapter 4. And uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 says to be anxious for nothing. And I mentioned last week that that's kind of a double entendre because, you know, you should be anxious. It's saying in Scripture, don't be anxious about anything. But when we practice anxiety, it ends up being for nothing. <laughs> it's an empty pursuit, and so it's both. We really shouldn't worry, we, the, the Bible is telling us, and also it, it, it's an empty pursuit. So anxious for nothing is a phrase that comes from Philippians 4, and out of that you get this action plan that we talked about uh, at the end of last week. If you haven't been with us for the previous sessions of any of our preaching or our teaching, whether on Sundays or Wednesdays or any of it, it's all recorded and it is all on our website. I sometimes get folks saying, hey, I was looking for that. You, got, they, you don't think we record it. We do. Everything is recorded. Uh, so if you miss anything and you want to catch up on it, you can find it at cbctrenton.com. But we talked about this action plan from Philippians 4 that includes our relationship to Christ, that if you're feeling fearful, we must guard our relationship with God who guards, according to that passage, our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That action plan also concludes our relationship to the body of Christ. If we are feeling fearful, we must connect deeply with others. And it includes our relationship to ourselves and our identity in Christ. If we're feeling fearful, we must know who we are in and to Christ. And then lastly, it includes our rational control center, being submitted to God's Word. If we're feeling fearful, we must renew our mind in Christ. So we saw last week that victory in anxiety is relational, how we relate to God, how we relate to others, how we relate to ourselves, but it's also rational, putting off lies and putting on truth. Paul's comprehensive action plan in Philippians chapter 4, you make a choice, it's volitional. It involves our will and choosing to act courageously. And so verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4 famously gives a whole list of the kinds of things that we could, should commit our minds to and think about. Now that is what we left off with last, last week. Now let's continue on. That if we are going to obey God in this issue of anxiety or anything else, then we are going to need to put into practice what God says. It can't, be, it can't remain in theory. We actually, have to, we actually have to do it. Overcoming anxiety requires that we practice what we've been taught. 
If we're feeling fearful, then we must act. Now, that might sound simple, but it's really quite profound because anxiety feeds on anxiety. So if you are not consciously acting and intentionally act, taking action, then you can be caught up into, in your thoughts and you can be, turn inward then, and that's the worst place to go when you're struggling with anxiety. Anxiety feeds on anxiety. Avoiding what you fear breeds greater fear. Nothing, in fact, empowers fear more than fleeing a fearful event. It becomes your habit. One man said it this way, whether it's speaking in public, going to the dentist, or finishing my presentation for the boss, the longer I delay, the harder it gets. The more I dodge situations that make me anxious, the more that fear paralyzes me. Now, simply saying this, simply saying to a person, immersed in fear, just face your fear, is like that, you, know, you guys know that Bob Newhart thing that's made it around for about 10 years now, where he's the counselor, it's a skit, and a lady comes and she says, you know, I have this phobia, I have this fear that I'm going to be buried in a box. And he says, look, okay, I, I can fix that for you, I charge $5, I don't give change. And so, okay, cash only, five bucks. And he says, okay, you might want to write this down. And then he says, stop it. <laughs> and she says, okay. He says, yeah, that's it, stop it. Stop thinking about being buried in a box. And then she's like, well, that's, that's your therapy? I don't, I don't think I like this therapy. He says, he says, well, you know, pay me the $5. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> but sometimes that's the way it can come off for counselors, right? You're just saying, quit. Quit doing that. So simply saying to a person immersed in fear, just face your fear, can sound like the just stop it Bob Newhart thing. But this is more than that. It's saying, yes, indeed, cease. We do want to get there, of course, but in the context of what we saw at the end of last week, these renewed relationships with God, others, with ourself, and in the context of a renewed mindset. So there's no, uh, there's no thought here that you simply turn it off, but rather you're able to transition from anxiety to security when you do it in the context of these renewed relationships with God, others, oneself, and in the context of this renewed mindset. So again, I encourage you to listen if you were not here for last week's session. In that context, then, there does come a time when we have to just put it into practice. We have to take vigilant action. Now remember, as we said in this series, that anxiety is stuck vigilance, that God has created us to be vigilant, that is to be responsible, to have a, a sensor that is alert to the things that we, that we need to do. But anxiety is stuck vigilance or hyper-vigilance. It's vigilance gone wild and being on perpetually high alert. So if anxiety is scanning and scanning without taking a stand, then most certainly we have to replace self-centered inaction with Christ-like other-centered action. So to take action then on this means you want to move from outside your, inside yourself outside to others. 
And I'll talk some, some more about that. But Jesus did that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He was sorrowful and troubled, the Bible tells us. He faced the prospect of taking our sin on the cross. To be sorrowful is to experience deep sadness, awful distress, grief. To be troubled is to be anxious and distressed. John Calvin described Jesus' experience as a combination of sorrow and sadness, of fear and trembling. Now, if He just stays there, well, then He's doing the same thing so many of us do, right? But He doesn't stay there. At the same time, that Jesus was experiencing this great psychological and emotional pain, He demonstrated amazing volitional fortitude and courage. He prays, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as, as you will. So He's moving outside. I mean, there's what He's feeling. There's what He's dreading. But He moves outside of that toward others. God, other people, what this will accomplish for them. For the Apostle Paul, overcoming anxiety involves thinking and choosing like Christ did. So following Christ's example, on the cross, Paul then writes Philippians chapter 2, and then later Philippians 4, from which the title of the series comes. But in Philippians chapter 2, he says, "...to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests." But each of you to the interests of the others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then many of you know what follows after that. Who have this same mindset as Christ Jesus? And then it goes on to talk about the mindset Christ Jesus had. That though he were equal with God, he did not consider that something to be held on to, something to be grasped for his own benefit, but instead made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being obedient to God, even all the way to obedience to death on a cross, he did all of that for others, looking outside, outside of himself. Worry, anxiety, draws us inward. Warriors look outward. Warriors, inward, if you're a warrior... It's outward. Worry protects itself. A warrior is willing to die to protect others. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, if that's true, and it is, then test yourself a little bit here. When you're with others, who do you talk about? And just think about when you're with others. Who are we talking about? And I have known people, I have counseled people and met people who, when there's a conversation with them, that conversation will be about, you know who that conversation will be about. Now, I'm going to hopefully make clear here that there are certainly times for any of us to come and seek help from a brother or sister or perhaps from a, a counselor, in which case you need to talk about what's going on with you. So there are certainly times to do that, and I'm not suggesting otherwise. I am saying test yourself for whether or not when you talk to people, it's kind of always about you. And if that's the case, then we have a problem. We have an inward problem here, right? How can I love other people and serve other people if I don't get to know those other people, and I can't get to know those other people if when I'm talking to them, it's always about me? 
When I do premarital counseling and I get to the communication section, I always tell the couple that communication, that in order to love you better, I have to know you better. But in order to know you better, we have to communicate better. So the reason we communicate is in order to know, and the reason we know is in order to love. So communication is not so we just don't have any problems. Communication is so I can get to know you, know how you're wired, and therefore know how to serve you, how to love you. But the person who is always focused upon themselves or mostly focused on themselves, that doesn't happen. In their communication, we're not talking about them. We're talking about, we're talking about ourselves. You know, over the years, I've had many people, and maybe you would say this yourself, you know, I just have a hard time meeting other people. I have a hard time talking to other people. Now, we're all wired differently, as you've heard me say in weeks past in this series, by God's design. Some are more extroverts, some are more introverts. I get all of that. But the Bible says that relationship is for the purpose of, it teaches that the relationship is for the purpose of discipleship. And therefore, I need to establish relationships. All of us do. And that means you need to overcome your introvertedness to go and talk to other people. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's one way to do it. Go up to somebody and talk to them about them. Because most people are willing to do that. So you go up and you say, hello, I'm so-and-so. And then you should have, and if you're not somebody who's quick on your feet to come up with these things just in a dialogue, then, you know, jot them down. Have a cheat sheet on your wrist, you know, something. That says, how do I keep throwing the ball back in the conversation? How do I keep it going? One of the best ways to keep it going is keep asking about them. So how long have you been coming here? So what do you do for a living? Do you have a family? Are you from here originally? Where'd you go to school? Just, just, all kinds of, just all kinds of things about them. And once you get that going, you won't generally have any trouble. Now, that person who's answering those questions that you're giving them about them, I'm hoping that that person will likewise go and do the same thing with somebody else. So that we all then are able to get to know one another, and it's not just us always talking about, about ourselves. Let me ask you as well, when you're with a group, who does the group end up talking about? Now, if you're struggling, again, you may need to, for a period of time, talk to someone about yourself, maybe for a period of a, of a long time. But if you're struggling, you, may, you, you need to know to move from this hypervigilance to healthy vigilance. So if you're struggling with anxiety, you want to move from that hypervigilance, which is what anxiety is, to healthy vigilance. Vigilance is a God-given thing, but you want to move to the healthy variety. So you're not then focused on self. It may take time, and it may require times. It may take time, and it may require times. It may require sessions. It may mean that you have a regular counselor that you go to. 
a biblical counselor that you go to. And you see them right, depending on how long and how deep the, the struggle is. But you have to take that action in order to do that. Now, everything that I'm saying here underlies something that those of you that have been of our church for a while have heard me talk about, namely, in our church's 10-year plan that we have five and a half years to go on, we've accomplished a number of things in the first four and a half years, we got a bunch to do in the last five, five and a half. If we don't get it all done, it's okay, we'll just shove it over to the next 10-year program plan. But at least we're shooting at something, right? But one of the things in it is called the road to maturity. And the idea there is to establish, as part of our church's discipleship program, helping people grow in the Lord, uh, resources to help people continue to move forward on the road to Christ-likeness as they inevitably encounter potential obstacles in two categories, these two categories. The two categories are the natural transitions that go on in life. One of the ways that people get sidetracked in their, their growth, I have observed over the years, is that they get entangled in one or perhaps later another transition in life. So, for example, a kid goes to, a kid goes to junior high. That's one of the natural transitions in life. Junior high is where a lot of problems can start. And if the parents aren't ready for what happens in junior high and the kids are not ready for what happens in junior high, then they go into junior high, these problems start to develop, and then it's really hard to get them, hard to get them back. You know, but here's the thing. We were all junior hires. So we all know something about the angst that you have when you're a junior hire, the problems that you have when you're a junior hire. We got a bunch of junior hires in our church, so we know what kind of problems they're going through, struggles they're having, Right? So we don't have to make all of this up, but the thing that gets me is in the church, it seems like everybody has to go through their path as if it's the first time anybody ever did this. But you've heard the phrase, experience is the best teacher. Now, a lot of times what we mean by that is you need to experience and it'll teach you. My view is experience is the best teacher, especially when it's somebody else's experience. Why should I have to experience all the mishaps that people before me already experienced? It's called the collective wisdom of people that have gone before you. So pull it together and help people with it in the transitions. So junior high is just one. Senior high is another one. You graduate from high school. Now what am I going to do with my life? I graduate from high school. And, you know, here's the advice that... <laughs> A lot of kids get when they graduate from high school. So, what are you going to do? And the poor kid is just stricken with fear. I have, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Well, you're going to go, you're going to, go to college? I, I, I don't know. How much does it cost? What do you have to do to, to get in? Unless they have somebody to guide them with that. You know, they have an open house. And we come to give them money, congratulating them in a card, congratulating them for graduating from high school. And every one of us says to them, what are you going to do? And they make something up. And I actually say that when I go to the open houses, I say to the graduates, I go, I'm not asking you what you're going to do because I know you're going to make something up. <laughs> now, a lot of them know, you know something that they're going to do, what school they're going to go to, but here's the thing. 
of people who go to college change their major at least once. And 50% change it twice. So when you tell me you got your life mapped out, maybe not. And that's okay. You don't have to have your life mapped out at 18. But we act like you, we act like you do. And so that sets you off on this, right? That's a transition. If you don't get that transition right, all right, then I, we won't get married. Yikes, that's a big transition. And if we don't get that right, if we don't have some premarital counseling, if we don't know what we're getting into, we have a first child. That can, all sorts of things can happen in that natural transition. You know, there can be postpartum that the, that the mother's having to deal with. This child can be a lot harder than she thought it was going to be. You have a baby that will not go to sleep. Will not go to sleep. And you're just hanging on the ragged edge. And you still want to go to church and you still want to be with your friends, but you're so tired you almost you can't do it. And then when you do, you see some other mom with a baby. And you compare notes. And she says, oh, she's a good baby. She sleeps all night. And you get arrested for accosting her. Because <laughs> it's the last thing you want to hear. You had, you had the baby. And then you go to midlife. We talk about midlife crisis. We know it's coming. Why is midlife a crisis? The reason it's a crisis is because all of the stuff that you dreamed about doing when you were 18, when you had your open house and, people, and you made stuff up, you're now 40 and you realize it isn't going to happen. All that stuff that it's not, I'm running out, it's not going to happen. So where's my life headed now? Midlife crisis. All right, but if I, if I make it through the midlife crisis and then I retire, and if we're still married when I retire, and you're hanging around, and the wife is hanging around, and neither, neither of you kind of know what to do with each other. And she says to you one day, honey, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. Go find something to do. You can't be here every day. Or empty nest before that. If you had the kids, the kids moved out. And you hadn't been cultivating your marriage relationship. It was all focused on the kids, and the kids move out, and then you see people break up after, after that. Every one of these, by the way, I've got a whole file of these. Of the transitions, not with names attached, <laughs> but just with the transitions and what naturally happens, the kinds of struggles that we all face. And there isn't any of them that are new. So the road to maturity is about then helping people, preparing people before they get to each one of those. Giving them the collective wisdom of what others have faced before you ever get there. Those are the natural transitions that can derail for a period of time one's progress in spiritual maturity. But then the other category, I said there were two categories, the other category is crises that occur. See, all the stuff I just talked about is just natural. You, if God gives you from, you know, in your life and you live to be 85, then you'll go through all of those things. But the, 
what's different for all of us are the various crises we'll go through, and we will all face some in a fallen world. So you'll have some kind of diagnosis that you'll have to face, or you'll have some kind of economic loss that you'll have to face. You lost a job, you made an investment that crashed, something like that. I mean, heaven forbid, you, it's not you that, that gets sick, it's your child that gets sick, or you lose a child. And this crisis now is something that is traumatic for you. It happens. And it, it phase, you're phased by it intensely. And now you have to deal with it, and you have to deal with the aftermath of it. And so for that, you need counsel. You need people to come around you to help you with, to, to get through that. It's the reason that our church's 10-year plan has a counseling center as, as part of it, because crises of all sorts happen. And if they don't get addressed, then you, you can't move forward. So when I say don't focus on yourself, I'm not saying you don't have stuff to deal with, because I know you do, because I do too. In a fallen world, every last one of us has lots of things to deal with of the natural variety and of the crisis variety. But the great news is we all have that in common. And further, God has given us then instruction for how to deal with the anxiety that goes with every last one of the kinds of things that I'm talking about. So our goal is to move from hypervigilance, as I said, to healthy vigilance. Healthy vigilance is God's gift to warn us of impending danger and to prompt us to act responsibly, courageously. How will you know when you're healed from anxiety? It's when you're tending and befriending others, even if the anxious feelings remain. When you're protecting others, not yourself, because you cling to God as your protector. So let me say again, when will you know that you're healed from anxiety? You'll know it when you're tending and befriending others, even though the anxious feelings for you remain. When you're protecting others, not yourself, because you cling to God as your protector. And you say to yourself, nah, I can't do that. Thanks, Pastor. It's been a good few weeks. I can't do that. Well, Paul anticipated you. He knew there was going to be somebody like you reading his stuff. So he gives in Philippians 4 this action plan. And then, you remember this verse? This is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that happens to be in Philippians 4. It happens to be in Philippians 4 where Paul said, be anxious for nothing. And then he talks about it being relational, relation with God, relation with yourself, relation with others. Rational, the things you think on in verse 8. Then he talks about his own life and his own traumas, his own crises that he's had to go through in Philippians 4. He says, I, have learned, I, I know what it is to be well-fed and to be hungry. I know what it is to be in plenty and in want. Do you guys remember him saying that? I, Paul, have learned the secret of being content 
in every situation. What a blessed thing. And it's right after that that he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So if you're sitting there saying, hey, no, I can't do it. No, Paul's saying, you can do it. And I, Paul, you know, if anybody thinks they've got it bad, <laughs> he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you think you have it bad, he goes, consider, and then he goes through all the stuff that he had to go through. And besides all of that, I have the concern of all of the churches. Besides all the stuff that's happened to me personally, I've got a bunch of churches that I'm writing letters to that are now in your New Testament that are having all their problems. So I know what it is to go through difficulty, says Paul. Well-fed or hungry, plenty and in want. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So it's in this context of overcoming anxiety that Paul penned those famous words. He, he cultivated a sort of can-do attitude. Not fortitude of his own, but can-do because of Christ. So this is nothing like modern self-help, positive thinking, or possibility thinking. That's all founded on self-sufficiency. Paul's can-do spirit is based upon who he is in and through Christ, not upon his own effort, strength, or power. So what happens when the reality of our fear runs into the reality of Christ's Word? Fear says, I can't do that. Christ's Word says, you can do all things through me. Some Christians say, ignore your fears, just obey Christ. That's not faith, that's faking. So one way to try to pursue the Christian life, which I've tried to dispel pretty much every week, but certainly in this series, is to fake it, to act like we've got it all together. One of the worst things that ever happened to the Christian church <laughs> was people thinking that, that you have to show up at church and not have any problems. As if we should, I mean, God wrote a book about us. I mean, we're in it. It's about Him and he includes us. We're in it. And he describes us, doesn't he? Like a lot. And we're a, we're a mess in the book. And so we come and we learn the book and we preach the book. And yet we think we can fake like we're not one of those people. No, God gave, you a, gave us a book that describes us. So let's just quit faking like we've got it together. You don't have it together. I know you don't have it together. I knew it when you came in the door. I know you don't because I don't. This side of heaven, you need a place where it's safe to be a sinner. And that's what we say at the church. Now, it's not okay to sin, but it's safe to acknowledge I struggle. I, I, I not just struggle with stuff people have done to me, there's that, but I struggle with stuff I do, my own sin. So we need to be willing to not fake it too much faking going on in the church. Others say, sure, admit your fear and then immediately defeat it. Well, that sounds close to the truth, but it lacks reality. It also lacks compassion. You can't immediately defeat some things that you've been dealing with for years. So we have to avoid two extremes. Don't fake it. Don't pretend your emotions don't exist, but don't charge full speed ahead. 
If you've been terrified for years, it's usually unwise to tackle our greatest fear all in one shot head on. Victory and anxiety is not a neat, nice, linear process. God's promise that we can do all things through Christ is not a guarantee we'll never face struggles. But we can, because we can follow God's prescription, turn setbacks into comebacks. Realize you can plateau and then climb higher. We can be willing to take risks, to fight again, to try again. Why? Because I have security in who I am in Christ, so I can do this. I know I'm His. I know He's got me. Regardless of the place at which you move ahead, always view yourself as more than a conqueror through Christ who is your conqueror. See and experience Christ as your rock, your defender, your strong tower, your fortress, your shield, and your sentry. And then you go on sentry duty for His glory and in His strength. Remember, that's what vigilance is, that sentry you have. That's to rightly go off to move you toward responsibility, but not the hyper-vigilance, hyper-sentry. All right, now we've got a couple of more weeks, and I want to go through then how to have peace in the storm. And I'm going to just start that now because we only have like five minutes in our, in our time left. But we'll continue it. We'll continue it next week. Just as we saw in Matthew chapter 6, that's Jesus' great statement regarding worry in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Philippians 4 is the Apostle Paul's charter on how to avoid anxiety. Those are the most comprehensive portions of Scripture dealing with that, those, those topics. And so they're foundational to understanding how God feels about anxiety and why He feels that way. So the teaching in both of those is clear, it's compelling, and it's direct. And I remind you of what Philippians chapter 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition... With thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The Bible says straight up that we're, we're not to worry, but it doesn't leave us there, thankfully. Instead, it instructs us by directing us toward positive steps, right praying, right thinking, and right action. The best way to eliminate a bad habit is to replace it with a good one. And few habits are as bad as worrying. The foremost way to avoid anxiety is through prayer. Right thinking and action are the next logical steps, but it begins with prayer, and that's what Paul says. So right in the midst of this passage about worrying, do, do not be anxious about anything, but in contrast to being anxious in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So that's then how we're going to flesh out this action plan, is by looking at Philippians chapter 4 and looking at the right praying, the right thinking, and the right acting that Paul talks about there. Now, the first thing he talks about is reacting to our fears with thankful prayer. Do not be thankful about anything in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. 
It tells us how to pray with, this passage does, with gratitude. The Greek terms that are used in that passage refer to specific petitions made to God in the midst of difficulty. So instead of praying to God with feelings of doubt, discouragement, or discontent, we're to approach Him with a thankful attitude before we say anything. We can do that with sincerity when we realize that God promises not to allow anything to happen to us that will be too much to bear, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He promises to work out everything for our good in the end, Romans 8, 28. And to restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast in the midst of suffering, 1 Peter 5, 10, the Bible says. So those are key principles for the Christian life. So you go beyond memorizing them to letting them be the grid through which you automatically interpret everything that happens to you. Know that all your difficulties are within God's purpose and thank Him for His available power and promises. So when you go to pray, before you ask for stuff, thank God for stuff. And the more you get into the habit of thanking God for stuff, the longer your list of gratitude will become. You'll get better at it. Just like over the years you got better at worrying, you can get better at praying. You can get better at being thankful. You're now setting your mind in a different direction. It's outward now. It's toward God. It's what God has, all this stuff God has done for you. So the Bible says for us to be the Bible says for us to be thankful for everything. Be thankful for everything. You know what's included in everything? That would be all the good, the bad and the ugly. But it's not just to be thankful for everything like in the abstract. The Bible elsewhere says this and I'm quoting. It, the Bible says be thankful for everything and then it also says be thankful in everything. You know, it's one thing to be thankful in the abstract. It's another to be thankful in the midst of the thing going on. But if you really believe these promises that God has given, one, He won't give you too much to bear. He's, whatever He does, He's working out everything for our good in the end, and He's looking to restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast in the midst of suffering. If you believe all of that, then in the middle of the thing, in the thing, We'll be able to say, Lord, thank you for this. I don't know what you're going to do, but I believe your promises. Now, I have said to people, because this issue of do you believe is so important, I mean, it's at the heart of the Christian life, right, what we believe. Believe and faith are the same word. You guys remember that? I've said it a zillion times. So what do I have faith in? Who do I have faith in? What do I believe? Do I believe those promises? If I believe them, then I can speak them. I can thank God for them. I can thank God in the middle of the junk that's going on in my life for that. But I have told people who habitually refuse to take action and put into practice what we say we believe. I have said to people on occasion, I know I'm going to sound horrible. Probably, I know I'm going to sound horrible. But I've said, hey, look, if you refuse to thank God for these promises, then just say to God, you don't believe them. Then tell him that. Just tell God, 
I don't believe you. I don't believe you can get me through this. I don't believe you're going to work this together for my good. I don't believe that you're going to leave it at what I'm able to bear. I don't believe that you're going to make me strong, firm, and steadfast in the middle of my, my suffering. I've actually, and I've actually told people, say that. Say it out loud. And if they're Christian people, they can't. Well, I can't say that. And I go, good, I'm glad. I didn't think you could. Well, if you can't say that out loud, then you do believe this. So say it to God. Lord, I believe that. And therefore, now I can thank you for everything, and I can thank you in everything. Now, we'll continue, we'll continue with that next week, okay? Let's pray and ask God to go with us this week. Father, we thank you again for allowing us to be in your presence with your people and to open your word and to consider what you tell us there, Lord, about every subject for life and godliness. You, because you are good to us, you have told us about so that we don't have to grope in darkness. And we have your word as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Thank you for this, Lord. And Lord, we were made to be vigilant. We were made to be responsible in the world that you gave us to tend for you. But our sin causes us to go into hypervigilance and to engage in anxiety and worry. And at times that's true for all of us. And for some of us, we struggle more than others. But Lord, for each of us, as your people, we want to please you. We desire to please you. And when you give us these precious promises in your word, Lord, as your children, we believe, that we, we believe them. They resonate with us. And so, Lord, help us to take them very seriously then and, and to repeat them back to you and to thank you for them as being true and to think about what a horrific thing it would be to not have that security of those promises from our Heavenly Father and to go through a fallen world in this life without being in your hand. And as we think about that, Lord, we're turned again to thankfulness because you are guiding every step of our way for your good glory and our good. So, Lord, help me to remember that this week. Help my brothers and sisters to remember that this week. We ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.